Beloved, this parable seems to be the same as a similar parable, the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. Perhaps you noticed that there were similarities. The Lord leaves. He leaves a certain amount of money with his servants. He returns and he rewards or punishes his servants according to their faithfulness or lack thereof. And something very similar occurs in this parable. But they are actually two different parables. The setting is different. The parable of the talents is delivered on the Mount of Olives as part of Jesus' Olivet Discourse in Jerusalem during the Passion Week. This parable is delivered on the way to Jerusalem in the house of Zacchaeus. The occasion for the parable is different also. The parable of the talents is part of that whole two chapters of instruction concerning the coming of Jesus and the need to watch for his return. This parable answers the mistaken notion that the kingdom of God was about to appear. Notice verse 11. And as they heard these things, he added and spake a parable because he was nigh to Jerusalem and because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. The kingdom, says Jesus through this parable, is not going to appear immediately. In fact, as we shall see, the Lord will go away for an extended period of time. And the contents of this parable are different too. In the parable of the talents, each servant receives a different amount, a different number of talents. And a talent is a large sum of money. In this parable, each servant receives the same amount, a much smaller sum of money, each servant receives one pound. And the calling then of this parable is clear enough, be busy, be busy until the Lord returns. Wait patiently for the coming of the Lord, work actively in anticipation of the coming of the Lord and do business with that pound that the Lord has entrusted to you. Notice then, trading with the word until the Lord comes. As we shall see, the pound is the word. Trading with the word until the Lord comes. Notice first the calling, second the reckoning, and third, the reward. Before we look at the calling, beloved, we need to set the scene. There are three main characters in the parable, or three main types of characters in the parable. First, there is a certain nobleman, verse 12. Literally, he is a certain man well-born. He is of noble birth, therefore. He is the heir to a kingdom. And this nobleman, as was the custom of that day, goes to a distant country to receive a kingdom. And the Jews were familiar with this idea because various kings had traveled to Rome in order to obtain the kingdom from the Roman emperor. This was true, for example, of the various kings called Herod. At the end of the parable then, the nobleman returns. 
the kingdom has indeed been conferred upon him, and the nobleman who then has become king, he then rewards or punishes according to the faithfulness or unfaithfulness or gross disobedience of his servants or citizens. And this nobleman obviously is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ went into a far country to receive a kingdom. And this was against the expectations of the Jews, as we see in verse 11. It was also against the expectations of the disciples. The Jews and the disciples believed that Jesus was going to Jerusalem and he would establish his kingdom when he got to Jerusalem. There was all kinds of anticipation in the air as Jesus approached Jerusalem, therefore. And the Jews and the disciples together believed that this kingdom would be an earthly kingdom of power in which the Jews would enjoy prosperity and through which the Jews would be rid of the wicked Romans. And if Jesus had done that, the Jews would have welcomed him with open arms. That's what they wanted. That's what they anticipated. But Jesus tells us in this parable that that's not going to happen. Jesus is going to go away to a far country, not to Rome, but to heaven. And his journey to heaven would be a difficult one because to go to heaven, he must pass through suffering and death. And then he would be resurrected, and following his resurrection, he would ascend into heaven. And in heaven, Jesus received his kingdom from the Father. And now, from heaven, he rules. And one day, he shall return in great power and glory. That's the nobleman. Second, there are the nobleman's ten servants mentioned in verse 13. And he called his ten servants. In Scripture, ten is the number of completeness. You can notice, too, that only three of these servants are mentioned in the subsequent verses. Those three are representative, therefore, of the whole of the ten. These servants, or more literally, slaves, belong to the nobleman. They are his property, body, and soul, and therefore they owe to him obedience, service, and loyalty. And these servants, then, are professing believers in the church and kingdom of God. And although one of them turns out to be a hypocrite, all of them, all ten of them, belong outwardly to God's church and kingdom. They all profess faith, and they all claim obedience to Jesus Christ. So we have the nobleman, Jesus, we have the ten servants who are believers, or at least professing believers, in the visible church. And third, there are the citizens of the noblemen who refuse to recognize him. Verse 14, And his citizens hated him and sent a message after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. These people are not among the ten servants. These people flatly refuse service to the nobleman. They even attempt to prevent his coronation. They send a message. Really, they send a company of ambassadors after the nobleman to intervene with the emperor. We will not have this man to reign over us. We do not want him to be our king. We refuse to recognize him as king or to submit to him and we will do everything in our power to prevent him from becoming king. And this happened also in Jewish history. 
There were times when the Jews were so enraged against the possibility of having a certain man become king that they sent ambassadors to Rome to stop the convening of the kingdom upon that man. And usually they failed in their attempt, but they tried it anyway. The emperor then usually conferred the kingdom upon the man of his choosing against the Jews' objections. The citizens then in the parable are the unbelieving Jews, especially now the leaders of the Jewish nation. They hated Jesus. He says in John 15, 25, they hated me without a cause. John 1, 11, he came unto his own and his own received him not. They hated Jesus because of the kingdom that he preached. They would have welcomed a kingdom of earthly prosperity. That's what they wanted. But Jesus came with a different kingdom and preached a different kingdom, namely a kingdom of righteousness, a kingdom in which the chief benefit is the forgiveness of sins, a kingdom in which one is delivered from the power of sin, not a kingdom in which one is delivered from earthly oppression, such as the oppression of the Romans. And so the Jews hated Jesus, who came and exposed them in their sin, and they refused anything to do with his kingdom. And they did everything in their power to stop Jesus entering his kingdom. They spoke evil against him, they conspired against him, they condemned him, they delivered him to the Romans eventually, saying, away with him, crucify him, we have no king but Caesar. And despite the Jews, Jesus entered his kingdom. In fact, he entered his kingdom through the cross, through the resurrection, through the ascension, and by dying on the cross, Jesus established the righteousness on the basis of which we who are sinners enter that kingdom. Three main characters then, or three main types of characters, the nobleman who is Jesus, the servants who are professing believers, and the citizens who are unbelieving Jews or rank unbelievers. And that brings us then, beloved, to the calling. Before the nobleman departs on a long journey to receive his kingdom, he calls his ten servants together. And to each of them he gives one pound. Remember I said in the introduction, there are two parables in which the Lord leaves money with his servants. The parable of the pounds, this one, and the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. In the parable of the talents, each servant receives a different amount. In this parable, the servants each receive the same amount. Ten servants, ten pounds, each receives one pound. A pound is a sum of money. The value is not very important for the meaning of the parable, except to say that it is a tidy sum, perhaps several months' salary, a tidy sum which is enough capital to invest. And that's the reason why he gives this pound to each of the ten servants. The ten servants then have a calling, occupy till I come. Occupy till I come, verse 13. And that word occupy comes from the world of finance. It is to employ something in business. It is to invest and improve capital. It is to trade with a view to making a profit. That's the calling. Occupy till I 
come. Do something productive with this pound. Invest it. Increase it. Improve it. When I return, says the nobleman, I want to see a return on my investment. Occupy till I come. And each of the ten servants then knew that to be his calling. But notice too that this pound is and always remains the nobleman's. It's given in trust, but it's the nobleman's property. These servants then are stewards. They're given the property. It never really belongs to them. It's always the nobleman's, and they are then responsible for how they use it. And that's clear, for example, in verses 16, 18, and 20. The three servants recognize this and confess this. Lord, thy pound, verse 16. Lord, thy pound, verse 18. And again, verse 20. Lord, behold, here is thy pound. It's always the Lord's pound. It's never their pound. And therefore, the nobleman gives his pounds to these servants so that they can, as stewards, use that money for their master's advantage. And the question then is this, what does the pound represent? It must be something that every Christian, that every professing believer has, because each of the ten receive it. It must be something to which every Christian has access because each of the ten receive it. It must be something that every Christian receives or every believer has in equal measure because each of the ten has it. And again I say, here there's a difference with this parable and the parable of the talents, because in the parable of the talents, each of the servants received a different amount, one ten, one five, and one received one. Here, each of the servants receives one pound. Therefore, it is the word of God. Every believer, every member of the church, Every member of the kingdom of God has the word of God. He hears it preached. He reads and studies it. He has access to it. That's the truth concerning every believer in the history of the church. They had the word of God. We have then received the word of God. We have received God's pound, as it were. And now we have a calling with respect to that word of God. Why did God give us the Bible? Why did God give us the preaching of his word? So that we would use it. God did not give us the Bible. God did not give us especially the preaching so that we could selfishly enjoy it and keep it to ourselves. God did not give us the truth so that we could simply hoard it and do nothing with it. Occupy, says the Lord, till I come. What does that mean practically? Well, a number of things. First, God requires us to listen to the Word of God so that we thoroughly understand it. That's where it begins. That's where our use of the Word of God must begin. We must take every advantage to hear good sermons, to study the scriptures in private and in Bible studies, to read good Christian literature, because ignorance is destructive to the Christian life. We listen to the Word of God. Second, 
God requires that we live according to the word of God that we hear. There's no profit, beloved, in hearing the word of God if we are also not doers. James 1.22 makes that clear. But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. If we live contrary to the word of God, then we bring dishonor on God's name and we greatly harm our witness to the truth. Paul writes in Titus that we must adorn or decorate, we must adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior in all things. Titus 2 verse 10. We must live, says Paul in 1 Timothy 6 verse 1 and Titus 2 verse 4, live in such a way that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. It's possible, of course, to live in such a way that the name of God and his doctrine are blasphemed. Third, God requires that having heard God's word and having lived out of that word and according to that word, God requires, third, that we propagate the word of God. That's, of course, the chief task of the minister who preaches, but that's not only the task of the minister because the whole congregation with every Christian is involved in propagating the word of God. Even if the individual believer does not speak much himself, he supports the gospel ministry with his money, with his prayers, with his presence. The believer sacrifices a great deal for the sake of the propagation of the truth so that the truth goes forth. Think of the Christian school. Think of the seminary. Think of the missions and the mission fields. These require time and money and commitment and devotion and the prayers of God's people. And without the commitment of the church, those things shrivel up and die. And fourth, God requires a life that is saturated in the word of God. You're hearing the word, you're living according to the word, you're propagating the word, you are living a life that is saturated in the word of God. Christian parents instruct their children in the fear of the Lord. Husbands and wives study the scriptures together and are molded by the truths of Holy Scripture. Single members and young people testify to the truth of God's word at school, university, and in the workplace, even by how they live. And if necessary, they suffer hardship for the sake of the word. The man who loses his job for the sake of the word is occupying until Christ comes. The man whose family hates him for the sake of the gospel and yet clings to the truth, despite their objections, is occupying till Christ comes. The believer who goes to prison rather than deny God's truth is occupying till Christ comes. The believer who lays down his life as a martyr because the alternative is disobedience to Jesus Christ is occupying until Christ comes. And there is therefore no lack of opportunity for every Christian, every believer, every member of the church, every member of the kingdom of God to occupy until he comes. This then is a lifelong calling for the child of God. Occupy till I come can also be translated as occupy while I am coming. And the idea there is that the nobleman could return at any moment. He doesn't say when he's coming back. And when he returns, he wants to see you trading with his pound. 
He does not want to see you and find you idle, squandering time, squandering money, squandering opportunity. You could have, and you must, press all things into the service of the Word of God. It's never too early to begin occupying till Christ comes. It's never too early to start reading and studying and propagating the Word of God. It's never too early to start living according to the requirements of God's Word. It may someday be too late, but it is never too early. It was too late for one of the servants when the nobleman came back to take a reckoning of his servants. It will be too late for those who, when Christ returns, are far neglectful of God's word. And so the calling is, occupy till I come. In verse 15, the nobleman returns. He is no longer a mere nobleman at this point. He is now the king, having received the kingdom, we read in verse 15. And this tells us then that the attempts of his enemies to prevent his coronation have failed. He has gone to the far country, he has received the kingdom as promised, and he is now returning, this time with power and regal majesty. In reality, this is a reference to the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He suffered, he was crucified, he died, he was buried. His enemies believed that they had destroyed him and his kingdom. And they did not understand that it was through his death that he had entered his kingdom it was through his death that he had brought us into his kingdom. In the upper room, before he enters his final suffering, Jesus says to his disciples, And I appoint unto you a kingdom as my Father hath appointed me. Paul writes about this purpose of God in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 8 which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And again, Colossians 1, 13 and 14, about God, we read this, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of of sins. After the suffering, death, and burial of Jesus, he was resurrected from the dead, he ascended into glory, he sat down as the King of kings in heaven, and on the last day he shall return to judge the living and the dead. And here the judgment is pictured in the parable. As the King returns, to render to every servant according as his works have been. Every servant must give an account before the king. Every faithful servant must be rewarded. Every unfaithful hypocrite must be exposed and punished. And every rebellious unbeliever must be destroyed. That's what happens in the latter part of the parable. And so we have the reckoning. The reckoning concerns the servants, the ten servants to whom the king, the nobleman, had committed his pound. And the question is, what have they done with the king's pound? We have that in verse 15. He commanded these servants to be called unto him to whom he had given the money, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. There is expectation on the part of the king that his servants have done something profitable with 
his money. That was the command, occupy till I come. There is expectation on the part of the king that his servants have gained something. That his money has not decreased, but increased. And for that reason, he calls them to give an account. This is the clear teaching of God's word. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 is an example of this. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Jesus presents three of the servants as representatives of the ten. The first says in verse 16, Lord, thy pound hath gained ten pounds. The word there that the servant uses, gained, has the idea of to add by working. By working, thy pound has added ten pounds. In other words, the pound has not increased through idleness. It has been used. It has been employed in the king's service. It has therefore increased. It has become ten pounds. Notice how humble and self-effacing the first servant is. He does not say, I have gained 10 pounds. But rather, he says, thy pound hath gained 10 pounds. Now, of course, the servant has been active. He does not deny that. Of course, he has used God's word industriously. He has preached, perhaps. He has listened. He has written. He has read. He has witnessed. All kinds of activity he has performed with this pound, but the power has been the word. The emphasis is on the accomplishments of the word. Thy pound hath gained, not on the industry of the servant. I have gained. And that also is the emphasis of Scripture. Here's 1 Corinthians 5, verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I but the grace of God which was with me. Paul does not deny his own work. He did labor, but he attributes all of the success and gives all of the credit for his work to the grace of God which worked mightily in him. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. There's the activity of the believer working out his own salvation. But then he adds this, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. God works the willing in you. God works the doing in you. And so the credit and the glory go to God. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 For this cause thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of man, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. There was this active receiving of the word of God by the Thessalonians, but, says Paul, 
It's the word which effectually worketh in you that believe. Thy pound hath gained ten pounds. What that means is not explained. However, this man used the means of grace. He diligently frequented the church of God. He was devoted to the truth of God's word. He listened to it. He defended it. He propagated it. He instructed his family and friends in it. He lived in holiness in this world according to God's word. He suffered for the truth, in love for that truth. And the result was that the seed of the word grew and developed in his life and in the lives of others so that the Lord's pound gained ten pounds. The second servant says, Lord, thy pound hath gained five pounds, verse 18. We do not know why his gain was less while the first servant's gain was more. But the situation is basically the same. Humbly, the second servant comes before the Lord and he humbly attributes the gain to the grace of God working through the word of God. Thy pound hath gained five pounds. Not I have gained, but thy pound hath gained. There's no indication here that the second servant was less faithful than the first servant. There's no criticism here of the second servant, as if God were to say to the second servant, well, how come you only gained five pounds when this first one, he gained ten pounds, your five pounds aren't good enough. Perhaps this second man had a smaller sphere of influence than the first man. He had less opportunity for doing good with the word than did the first man. But sovereignly, God determined less fruit for this man than for the first man. God does not measure success, beloved. He judges faithfulness. And so there's no chiding of this man. Your five pounds are inadequate. You should have gained more than five pounds. But there is rather praise and there is rather a reward also for him. Both servants, as we shall see, are rewarded richly. And there were, of course, other servants. Seven of them are not mentioned. We presume that there was variety. Perhaps others gained 10 pounds, or others gained 5, or 6, or 7, or 8 pounds. Perhaps one gained 2 pounds. In each case, though, except one, as we shall see, the servant was faithful. Not perfect, not without sin, but faithful. In each case, too, the servant said, Lord, thy pound hath gained. And the word of God always gains if it is used. And that's the difference, really, between the first two servants and the last servant. They used it. They occupied it. They did something useful with it. And then the other servant, who we'll see in a moment, he did nothing with the pound. Sadly, there is a third servant mentioned in verse 20. Lord, he says, behold, here is thy pound, which I have kept laid up in a napkin. This man did nothing with the pound that was entrusted to him. And therefore, unsurprisingly, the pound does not grow. Instead, he stored it away in a safe place, in a napkin, we are told. The word napkin is a sweat cloth. A sweat cloth is a cloth used to wipe 
perspiration from the face. A sweat cloth is used while working. We sweat while we work. We wipe perspiration from our face while we work. This man had a napkin. This man had a sweat cloth, but he did not work. And he did not set the pound to work. He took the pound, he wrapped it in a napkin, and he hid it kept it safe until the Lord returned. This man, therefore, did not profit from the word. Perhaps he heard the word somewhat occasionally. His attendance at the word was not very faithful. And when he was there, he wasn't enthusiastic in hearing the word. He was a forgetful hearer, sitting under preaching perhaps, but forgetting the sermon as soon as, as it was over, never really paying much attention to the Word of God, never put the Word of God into practice in his life, made no effort to propagate the Word of God, no devotions with his spouse or family, no witnessing to the truth of God's Word, no prayer or support of the mission field, no promotion of the truth. And if he was ever called to suffer for the truth, he compromised and refused to suffer for God's word. He did nothing with the pound. He had his excuses. The parable allows him to speak so that we might hear his excuses and know what was in his heart. And parables often do that. They allow the characters to say what is really in their hearts. On judgment day, every mouth shall be stopped. No excuses shall be made on judgment day. But in the parable, he speaks. We learn from his speech what he really thought about his master. Verse 21. For I fear thee because thou art an austere man. Thou takest up that thou layest not down, and reapest that thou didst not sow. And that word austere is bitter or harsh. He sees the nobleman, who is now the king, as cruel, unreasonable, and exacting or demanding. But what did the king demand of him? Take my word, believe my word, study, read my word, listen to the preaching of my word, live according to my word, propagate my word, witness according, concerning my word. These are not unreasonable demands. One who believes and who loves the gospel should want to do that anyway. There was no love for the Lord in this man's heart. There was no gratitude for him. To serve this king, says the servant, is an intolerable burden. And while the other servants happily served the king, delighted for the privilege that they could serve the king, this man harbored a grudge against the king in his heart. He grumbled at the unreasonableness of the king's demands. He hated the king. He hated him as much as the rebels did, but less openly. He pretended to love the king and to be a servant of the king and to be devoted to the king, but really he had no love for the king in his heart and he hated the king and he viewed the king's pound as worthless. When the king returned, he was relieved almost to get rid of that pound. He wanted nothing to do with it and he gives it back to the king and there was no increase in that pound. That pound, having not been used, had done 
nothing, just as he had done nothing. He had served himself. His own pleasures, his own desires, his own life long had done nothing with the Lord's pound. And so, beloved, we come to the reward. The various parties are rewarded. We begin with those who were rewarded with punishment. First, in verse 27, the king orders that his enemies, the ones who resisted his rule, should be put to death before him. That will happen on the last day. All who refuse to serve the Lord Jesus Christ shall be cast into everlasting fire and tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the Lamb. Second, the wicked servant is punished in verses 22 through 26. The king, having heard the man's excuses, judges him out of his own mouth. If you knew my character, he says, and the king does not here admit this to be his character, but he grants the premise for the sake of argument. If you knew my character, then you should have at the very least deposited my pound in the bank. It would have gained at least some interest perhaps a 1% or 2% or 3% interest, or perhaps more. But doing nothing with the pound, which is what the servant did, was not an option. And therefore the king calls him wicked. And the punishment then is forfeiture of the pound. It is taken from this man, the one pound is, and given to the servant with 10 pounds. And forfeiture of the pound means essentially this that, this, that this man is not a servant of the king. And if he's not a servant of the king, he's an enemy of the king and is punished accordingly with the others who were put to death in front of the king. He perishes forever in hell. He's a hypocrite in the church. And third, the two faithful servants are rewarded. The second servant, in whose case the king's pound gained five pounds, is made to rule over five cities. The first servant, in whose case the king, king's pound gained ten pounds, is made to rule over ten cities. And to him is given the pound entrusted to the wicked servant. And the result is that the first servant has 11 pounds and he has 10 cities. And the second servant has 5 pounds and he has 5 cities. And the third servant, the wicked man, he has nothing. How then do we understand these rewards? Well, first, we do not take them literally. We will not literally rule over a certain number of cities in the new creation. You cannot say, I will rule over Dublin and Limerick in the new heavens and the new earth. Another man cannot say, I will rule over Los Angeles, New York City, Chicago, Denver, Seattle, and Washington, D.C. in the new heavens and the new earth. That's not the idea. In fact, we're going to rule with Jesus Christ over the whole creation. In the second place, there are differences or degrees in these rewards. One man whose pound gained 10 pounds was given authority over 10 cities. Another servant whose pound gained 5 pounds was given authority over five cities. Both men rule with their Lord, but one of them has a greater sphere of rule than the other. One has a higher glory, you might say, than the other. And so there is correlation between a man's faithfulness and his reward. And this promise of a reward, beloved, is an incentive. 
The Bible presents it as an incentive. It is an encouragement to be faithful, especially when the work is hard, when the opposition is great, when the suffering is intense. Luke says Jesus to the reward that will come to you on the last day. Here's Hebrews 10, 35 and 36. Cast not away therefore your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. The promise of the reward is an encouragement to be patient. And then third and finally, the reward is not of merit, but of grace. The reward is not given because we deserve it. The servant whose pound gained 10 pounds did not deserve to rule over 10 cities. And the servant whose pound gained five pounds did not deserve to rule over five cities. Both servants deserved nothing at all, and they would be the first to say so. It was a privilege to serve the king. It was a great honor in itself to be entrusted with the king's pound and to see the king's pound grow. And therefore, the source of the reward is not the hard work or faithfulness of the servant, but the generosity of the king. The king chooses to be generous to his servants to encourage them. Very concretely then, beloved, the Lord gave us a place in his kingdom graciously. The Lord prepares work for us to do graciously. The Lord works in us by his Holy Spirit to do the work graciously. The Lord forgives us on the basis of the cross all the imperfections and sins that cleave to our work. He does that graciously. And the Lord finally crowns his gifts with his grace graciously. It's all of grace. Salvation is of grace, and the reward is also of grace. That's the incentive, beloved, to serve such a king. He is a gracious Lord. We serve him out of thankfulness by the power of his grace working in us. Amen.